0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Summit Point Church. So to start off today, you might be wondering the question, where did all his hair go? Well, uh, this past week was Vacation Bible School, and they said if the kids raised $1,000 for missionaries, I would get my head shaved. If they raised $1,500, I would get slimed. And so they got over $3,000 for missionaries uh, raised at Vacation Bible School this week. So I got shaved and I got slimed and Pastor Elijah got nothing. So if he's listening, he's on vacation. But if you're listening online, man, next year you got to get slimed with me. All right. So uh, VVS was a great week. Um, We had nine kids give their life to Jesus this past week. Um, So let's clap for that. That is a great sweet time following up with those kids. And uh, lots of families came to our church. If you were there volunteering in any capacity, carnival throughout the week. We had over 50 volunteers or something like that. So uh, it was just incredible. If you volunteered, we love you. Thank you for all your hard work, all your energy. Some of our tailors are probably still sleeping right now. I don't know. Um, kids, it was crazy, but it was, it was a lot of fun. We made it work with all the construction and everything uh, going on. And so I think it was a good week. It was a good week that uh, helped me kind of to reflect on hope a little bit. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is hope. We also had a great victory uh, this this past week for the sanctity of life in our country. Something that if you told me five years ago, I never would have really known that I could have hoped for that to happen. But um, So this morning, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about Jesus who is our living hope. And so you guys can turn there this morning in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter was written by Peter, a fisherman. And Peter, in this letter, was writing to Christians who were scattered throughout the area that is modern-day Turkey. This was written during the reign of the emperor Nero who persecuted Christians. And Peter was writing this letter seeking to encourage these Christians in the middle of their persecution, in the middle of their suffering. I want to give you guys a little bit of the background about why Christians are being persecuted at this time. And so... In the Roman Empire, everyone was required to make sacrifices to the emperor, to worship the emperor as being a god, to declare that Caesar is Lord. But Judaism was the one religion that did not have to do this. And so when Christianity uh, first began, they saw Christianity as being sort of a sect of Judaism because Jesus was a Jew. But soon enough, they were split off from the Jews because the Jews uh, were not recognizing or many of them were not recognizing Jesus to be the Christ. And so Christians were seen as being a separate religion from the Jewish faith. And now because Christians are not viewed as being Jews or a sect of Judaism... They were required by that law to make sacrifices to the Roman emperor and worship the Roman emperor. And so they declare that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so they didn't want to make sacrifices to the emperor. And they were persecuted because of this. They were cast out of their homes. They're spread out. And so Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are, he calls, elect exiles in the dispersion in these different areas that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So they're even driven from their homes. Let's look at this in First Peter chapter 1, starting out in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter is writing this letter and back then, you know, they couldn't just shoot an email or anything like that. And so they would write these letters on scrolls and they would put their name at the top of the scroll so the person did not have to open the scroll all the way down to the bottom to see who the letter is addressed from. So Peter starts off by saying his name, Peter. And really the first point this morning is based on just that one word, Peter. And the first point is that Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. Peter starts the letter with the name Peter, but Peter is not his real name. What was his real name? It was Simon. Peter is a nickname that Jesus gave him. That word Peter comes from the Greek word Petros. It could mean a rock. And so Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, Petros, on this rock I will build my church. And I can't help but wonder why Jesus gave Peter this nickname And when I think of a rock, I think of something that is pretty uh, immovable, right? Peter had this stubborn, fighting spirit about him. And Jesus gives Peter the nickname rock. Peter was passionate. And God wanted to use that. So I love how Peter is starting out this letter, not saying Simon was the one who wrote this letter, but Peter. Peter is identifying himself with the name that Jesus gave him. Peter wanted people to know Peter, not Simon. He wanted to show them that God uses anyone. I mean, Peter got in trouble. He made bad choices, right? He was stubborn. But God wanted to use all this passion, all of his past mistakes and flaws or pros and cons about his personality for good. And so Peter identifies himself as Peter, showing them that God can use anyone And maybe with you, you have things about yourself or things about your personality that you think, well, God wants to use these good things about myself, but God doesn't want to use these things about my personality. But God wants to use all of you, the good and the bad. God doesn't just take our good parts and use that. He takes all of us. He wants to use all of us for his kingdom. He doesn't just demolish the bad things in our life and use the good parts for goods. The Bible says that he uses all things. He works all things together for good. So Peter, he starts out giving this greeting about salvation. In verse 2 he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So he begins by kind of detailing a little bit about how the Trinity works in salvation, each person of the Trinity. He says that God the Father, according to his foreknowledge, he predestines us for the faith he, he elects us, that's what he calls them, the elect exiles. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, grows us, helps us grow in our walk with Christ. Jesus enables us to be obedient to God because he is the vine, we abide in him just like a branch is part of a vine. We abide in Jesus and this makes us able to be obedient and live out the Christian life. And of course, through the sprinkling of his blood, through his blood, we are saved by his sacrifice for us on the cross. So Peter details these things a little bit, and with the, epistle, the epistles, the Pauline epistles, James, John, uh, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these different epistles, there are amazing greetings. And I think it would be great just to have a series on the greetings and the goodbyes of the epistles. They're so rich, um, but we don't have time for that, so I'm not going to go on a rabbit trail. So anyways, Peter tells them, giving this, this greeting, and then he says, May grace and peace... Be multiplied to you. So he's talking to these suffering Christians that have been kicked out, dispersed from their homes, and he says, "May grace and peace be multiplied to you," because they needed grace and they needed peace. And this morning we need grace and we need peace. I have uh, right now. I'm taking seminary online, and so I'm about two two years through. I got about one year left, and. One of the benefits to doing online seminary is I get to have classmates that are all over the country and even all over the world. So I had this one classmate that was a missionary in Thailand. And in Thailand he's doing prison ministry and he met a Christian in this prison. Now you might be wondering why he's a Christian in prison in Thailand. Well, this Christian man and his family are from Palestine. And in Palestine they were facing persecution and they had threats made against them. And they even had somebody open fire on them and their family shoot at them. And they fled the country to Thailand, so they're in Thailand for about six months or so, and their visa was up, and they don't want to go back to their country because it wasn't safe for them there. But their visa was up in Thailand, and so they are technically there illegally in Thailand now that their visa was up. So they were put into prison, and so this classmate of mine, he's talking to this Christian man, is in this prison, and in this prison. They have to take turns sleeping because the conditions are horrible. It's super hot, you know, probably around over 100 degrees, 105, 110. I'm from Bakersfield, so it's like Bakersfield every day there, right? It's, it's really hot, but you're crammed tight together with other people. There's not enough room for everyone to sleep. So people have to take turns laying down on the ground while others stand to let them sleep in these horrible conditions. And he's talking, my, my classmate was talking to this, mission, this Christian in the prison, asking about how he's doing. And he responded, God is good. God is good. Peter's writing this letter to suffering Christians. May grace and peace be multiplied to you because there's something about going through the hard times that helps you see the goodness of God in just a different way. It says grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's no grace like God's grace. It turns sinners into saints, it turns lost people Into found people, it turns hurting people into healed people. There's no peace like God's peace. God's peace can turn a stressful situation into a really good time to pray. God's peace can turn a bad diagnosis from a doctor into a song of deliverance. God's peace is what holds up Christians around this morning, around the world this morning, who are packed into jail cells and worshiping in a hidden basement. God's grace and God's peace, we all need that in our lives and Peter is saying may grace and peace be multiplied to you it's not just hey I want you to have some grace and peace in your life it's saying I want this thing to be multiplied exponentially in your life because you need this and this morning maybe that's what you need maybe you need grace and peace to be multiplied to you first Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 Says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The next point that we're talking about this morning is that your hope. Will last as long as its object. Your hope will only last as long as its object. Every season, if you're a sports fan, you wanna have faith that your team's gonna make it to the championship, win the championship. Uh, If you're like a New York Knicks fan, you've been waiting for 50 years and probably disappointed. But every season, you wanna have faith. You wanna have hope in that, right? And then the season goes on, and by the end of the season, uh, the championship game is over. If they didn't make it, well, your hope is gone. Because your hope was in that and it runs out by the end of the season. Your hope will only last as long as it's object. If you put your hope in your money, it will only last until you're broke or die. Because you don't take your money with you. If your hope or faith is in our culture, then it's going to be constantly changing because the morality of our culture is, is constantly changing and morally digressing. If your hope is in a politician, it's only going to last until they're out of office. Your hope is only going to last as long as the object of your faith, your object of your hope. It only lasts until it dies. And there was a day when it felt like hope died. A man carried a rugged cross up a hill. He needed help. He couldn't carry it himself because of all the beating and and whiplashes that he had endured. He was laid out on the ground on this cross, shoulders dislocated, nailed through both hands, through his feet. He was lifted up from the ground. As he hung there, the sky went black. He cried out his last, it is finished. The earth trembled. The veil in the temple that separated the presence of God from man, this thick veil tore from top to bottom, and Jesus died. It was Friday, but Sunday was coming. And I'm sure that Sabbath Saturday there is weeping, there was guilt, there is shame over what they had people had done, there's despair as everyone felt hopeless. And the third day, the women they go to the tomb. And they see this scene where the the stone is rolled away. All these guards that were guarding the tomb, they're all passed out on the ground. They talk to this angel and he says, he is not here for he is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. They go in, they see the tomb is empty. They end up uh, encountering the resurrected Christ. And while this amazing scene is going on, there's another scene happening. With Peter, the author of this text this morning. They were behind a locked door doing this. Right? The women went went to the tomb. But all the disciples, all these other disciples, they were hiding behind a locked door. They're scared. Because they're like, well, they killed Jesus. What are they gonna do to us? We're the followers of Jesus. So Peter was hiding. Peter was in a place of hopelessness. These were men that followed Jesus everywhere. They saw the many miracles, they heard the messages. Even some of them saw him die on a cross. But Jesus told them this would happen. I can't help but wonder if they thought back to this verse right here in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus tells them exactly what would happen. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is interesting to me, or kind of crazy. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the grave. I'm sure he talked about the implications of this. Jesus dies from our sins. He's raised from the grave. And just like Jesus is raised from the grave, we can be raised to walk in a newness of life. So this is an amazing gospel truth. And in response to this truth, what does that verse say there? They were greatly distressed. So Jesus shares, I'm going to die and rise from the grave. And they're like, man, this is, this is stressful. That was their response. Because they were quick to stress, but they were not quick to trust. They were quick to be distressed, but they were not quick to hope. They were thinking questions perhaps like, Jesus will die. What does this mean for us? Maybe the resurrected sounded too, true, too good to be true. Quick to stress, but not quick to trust, not quick to hope. To be hopeful is not always natural for us. In our life, we have let others down, they have let us down, right? And this sinful, hopeless mindset that the enemy wants to rule our world sometimes affects our ability to trust in God's promises for us because we stress like God's going to let us down the way others have let us down. But God's not going to let us down. He never has and he never will. But let's step into Peter's point of view here. Peter's hiding. Peter's hopeless. Maybe stressed. I don't know what he's going through. And they're hiding out of fear, perhaps, for what would happen to them. But I think Peter's hiding for another reason. Because just days earlier, Peter denied Christ three times. His Lord, Savior, his Master that he passionately followed. Peter was a passionate guy. I'm sure you have passionate people in your life. Uh, I'm Probably a passionate person. And so passionate people can have high highs and they can have low lows. And someone as passionate as Peter, he was like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you anywhere. I'm going to do anything. He was on fire. But on the other end of the, the spectrum, he denied Christ. And the Bible says that he wept. He, is, he just felt broken, full of despair. He's not just hiding behind that locked door. He's In his heart, he's hiding behind this cloud of shame over what he's done. So Peter is hiding behind his hopelessness. But then something happened. They hear a knock. And I'm sure it's not one of those knocks that's like, they probably didn't do that back then, right? It was probably banging. Somebody's banging on the door. They open this locked door. The woman's like, he is not, he's not here. He is risen. Jesus is alive. We saw the resurrected Christ. So Peter starts running. And Peter... He runs pretty fast from what we've seen in the Bible. He runs really fast. So Peter's running and running and running. He sees the empty tomb. He encounters the resurrected Christ eventually as well. And he understands what it means to have a living hope. He sees that hope did not die on that cross. Hope was raised again. Hope is alive. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So just like there's objects of our faith, objects of our hope that can diminish Christ because he is alive forevermore. If we put our hope in the one that is alive forevermore, then our hope will last forevermore as well. So because Jesus is alive forevermore, this verse right here in 1 Peter uh, chap- uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where is your faith this morning? Where is your hope? Is your hope in something that's going to last forever? You shouldn't put your hope in a church. If you put your hope in one particular church, well, maybe if that church shuts down or if you leave, a, leave the city and move somewhere else, you can't find another church, well, then your hope is only going to last as long as you're at that church. You shouldn't put your hope in a preacher because when that preacher retires, your faith is going to retire too. You shouldn't put your hope in your spiritual disciplines. Now we need to have spiritual disciplines like fasting, prayer, reading our Bible. Those things can help bring us closer to God. But if those things are the object of our hope, then they will actually just bring us further from God. Because legalism doesn't bring you closer to God, it brings you further. The object of our faith is not even the book that we read. Now I I want to clarify this for you. Of course we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. We believe the words of pages on scripture. But what I'm saying is these literal pages, someone can read this whole book from front to cover. But if they never put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will not have eternal life. Words on a page cannot save you. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees one time. He's saying, you guys know the scripture so good. And you believe that in them you have life. But you got it wrong. The scriptures point to me, yet you never turn to me to have life. You don't find life from words on a page. You find life in the one that the words on a page point to. That's that's the point that I'm trying to make here. So put your faith, put your hope in the one that the Bible talks about. Because reading the Bible won't save you, but turning to Christ, that's what's going to save you. Verse four, it says that this living hope Gives us an inheritance. A couple weeks ago, what can I do? We talked about that verse where it says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? This inheritance of eternal life, verse four says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you, it's guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Some people will say that you can lose your salvation. And I would point them to this verse, but but. Jesus said whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if I believe in Jesus and I have everlasting life but a few months later I fall away from God and then I lose my salvation. Well, my everlasting life didn't last very long, did it? So it wasn't really everlasting life. But the Bible says when you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life. Your inheritance is imperishable. Your inheritance cannot be defiled. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It is being guarded not by your power, not by how good you're going to be. It says it's being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm curious, who here in their family is the one that plans the vacation for your family? I'm just curious. Okay, so we got some planners in here. So, have you ever planned something... You got the hotel reservation and kids are going crazy or whatever it may be. You, you go up there and, and there's, you're like Jesus, Joseph and Mary. There's no room at the inn. They lost your reservation. That's not a pleasant feeling, right? That's not, that's not fun because you're like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I'm going to go have to find somewhere to stay last minute. That's not a pleasant feeling. But that doesn't happen in heaven. There's not incompetent receptionist angels in heaven. right? The Bible says that your salvation is kept in heaven for you. There is a book of life that the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, your name is never erased from that book of life. Never erased. And God's power is guarding you and enabling you to live out the Christian life to, put, to continue to have more and more faith in him. And that will get you into heaven. It's your faith in Christ. So your hope is kept in heaven for you until the day you see God face to face. First Peter chapter one, verses six through nine says this, "In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The next point this morning is that our living hope persists through trials. If you're taking notes there, our living hope persists through trials. This passage right here tells us a few things that trials do. They're going through a hard time right now. And so Peter is trying to give them a different perspective on their suffering. And try to help them understand how their suffering can actually be beneficial for them. The first thing that trials do, and I don't think you really need to learn this. You just kind of know it when you're going through a trial. Is that trials grieve us. Right? He says, you have been grieved by various trials trials are not fun that's just true we can act like oh i want to have strong faith god bring the trials bring bring the broken like break me apart god make me more like you and in those times of prayer we could feel like that but when we're going through it we're like god i need a can you fix this (laughs) because right i need some help here i'm not sure if i wanted this right it's like kind of like that thing don't pray for patience because god will give you opportunity right? Lots of opportunity to be patient. We're going to have trials in our life. It's inevitable. And they're going to grieve us. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, you're going to have trials. The difference is if you have Christ in your life, you have the grace and peace of God to go with you, to be multiplied to you in the midst of those trials. And that makes all the difference. So trials grieve us. But we don't follow Christ because it's easy or it's always going to be easy or we're never going to have hard times. We follow Christ because it's real. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. We have a real hope in a real living God and a real joy in the middle of trials because our hope is in someone who is alive forevermore. The second thing that trials do is prove the genuineness of your faith. Right there in verse 7, it says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fire is used to purify metals. And so if you want to purify a bar of gold, you put it over the fire and the impurities will melt off. You can clearly see if this is a genuine bar of gold. Trials are the fire of faith. Trials are the fire of faith. That's not one of your notes, but that could be something to write down. So trials put our faith under the fire. They put your faith in Christ under the fire, and it melts away the impurities. It melts away the bad habits. It melts away those perishable things that you're holding on to that keep you from having a real, genuine faith in Christ. And he says here that your faith is more precious than gold because it is uncorrupted and imperishable in Christ. Gold can be perished, but the blood of Jesus cannot. So if your faith and hope is in the imperishable, that's a good place to put it. So trials are the fire of faith. I heard this this quote one time about God refining us through fire, the fire of trials in our life. God wants to make you like Jesus. It's Christian means. It means a little Christ. So God wants to make you like Jesus. But God is going to keep refining you until he sees his reflection in the gold. God wants to change you and mold you. Now, this isn't some sort of pantheistic thing where we're all just absorbed into this one. Uh, it's kind of like, a, I kind of compare that to like a mosquito light. Like a, you got like a mosquito light and all the mosquitoes are attracted to it and they just kind of... And they're just, they go into the light. That's not what this is. Make, God wants to make us like Jesus, but God isn't going to make us Jesus. Does that make sense? So God created you individually, but he wants to make you like Jesus, exactly like him. So he sees his reflection in your life. You are bearing the image of God the way you were originally intended to back in the book of Genesis. Here's the third thing that trials do. Trials give us a reason to praise God. That is their result. So right here in verse seven, it says, that the tested genuineness of your faith and goes down to say, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. So the result of trials in my life and your life should be praising God. Now that sounds kind of, that sounds kind of weird, right? Because when you think of praise, you're thinking of, okay, let's clap our hands. Let's get joyful. And praise can be that. Of course praise can be celebratory. But if you ever read the book of Psalms, praise is not always celebratory. Sometimes praise is just crying. Sometimes praise is how long, oh Lord. My God, when are you going to come help me? But there's something about praising God in the middle of trials that is just special. I've seen church members come in here dealing with painful painful losses in their life but they come in here with tears streaming down their face lifting their hands praising God in the middle of that trial and there's something about experiencing God in the middle of praise and worship like that that is just it's just unique it's just unique so trials do three things the first thing was that trials grieve us trials prove the genuineness of our faith and the last thing is that trials give us a reason to praise God. And these persecuted Christians that Peter is riding through, they're going through these trials. But he's helping them to see the benefit of these trials. In your life, maybe you're going through trials. If not, you're going to. It's going to happen. But I hope that you can see these benefits of trials here in 1 Peter chapter 1. But this morning, the main point of this passage here is that Christ is our living hope. We are born again to this living hope in Jesus. So I wanna ask you this morning, think of yourself, where is your hope? What have you been putting your hope in? Is your hope kept in heaven for you where it's imperishable, undefiled? It's never gonna get ruined. Or is your hope in things here on earth where it's gonna fade, where it's gonna die? But you don't have to have a dead hope. You can have a living hope, an eternal hope. Maybe this morning, you don't need better faith. Sometimes we think, God, I mean, I, I want to have more faith. I want to believe God more, and that's good. But maybe we don't need better faith. Maybe we just need a better object to our faith. Maybe sometimes we put our faith in what we're doing to get closer to God rather than just put our faith in God himself. So really we're putting our faith in ourselves and how I'm trying to get close to God rather than just put my faith in God and trust in him to work through me to draw me to Himself, This living hope is for you. Where is your hope this morning? I want to close with a gospel message from 1 Peter chapter 1. Only just a few verses down there. Starting off in verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Bible says that you are ransomed from futile ways. It makes me think of the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, the richest, wealthiest man in the world, is saying that all this stuff, all these sinful passions, desires that we pursue is like chasing after the wind. It's vanity. It's futile ways. It's meaningless. A meaningless life is only one step away from a hopeless life. Inevitably, if you live a meaningless life, you will have a hopeless life. And the Bible says that Jesus came to ransom us from futile ways. Jesus came to ransom us, to purchase us with his blood from a meaningless life. In the Bible, you know, talking about salvation, we think about eternal life, going to heaven when we die, but God doesn't just want to save us from eternal damnation in hell someday. God wants to save us from wasting our life now. God doesn't want you to waste your life. God wants you to live your life for things that actually matter, for things that are actually gonna fulfill you and fulfill the eternal purposes God has for your life. And Jesus came to save us from these meaningless things. It says you were ransomed from futile ways. When I think of a ransom, I think of someone who has been kidnapped. And there's this thing that happens sometimes. It's a mental diagnosis called Stockholm Syndrome. When somebody is kidnapped... The captured person can sometimes fall in love with their captor. This also can happen sometimes in abusive relationships where the person who is abused for, for some reason, to, to be able to cope with their trauma and what's happened to them, they are loyal to and loving to their abuser or their captor. The Bible says that Jesus came to ransom us from our captor. The captor being our sin, our futile ways. But here's the deal. We have Stockholm Syndrome because we love our captor. We love our sin. We love meaningless things sometimes. If you don't believe me, just go, go on your phone, look at your screen time for this past week. Right? We love meaningless things. But the Bible says Jesus came to save us from that. Jesus came to give us meaning in our life now. Not just when we go to heaven when we die, but now He came to ransom us from a meaningless life. He came to give us a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. It's a living hope that persists through all trials and never fades because he is alive forevermore. This morning, do you need hope? There's lots of options out there for you to find hope, put your hope in, but they're going to die someday. But Jesus is never gonna die. He died, he rose rose again from the grave and he is alive forevermore. Do you know him? In Jesus, you can have a new start. You can have a living hope. No matter what you've done, no matter what hopelessness you walked in here with this morning, God wants to give you hope through his son, Jesus Christ. You can be born again. That means you have a new start because he has risen from the grave And God wants to shower you with his grace and shower you with his peace. And all you have to do is come to the foot of of the cross and say, Lord, I give up trying to do this thing on my own. I want to follow you. And that's when you can really understand what it means to have a living hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our living hope. You are the one who died and rose again You are the one that came to ransom us from living a meaningless life. You want to give meaning to our lives, Lord. You want us to give us eternal purpose. You wanted to give us an everlasting inheritance kept in heaven undefiled for us, God. And we thank you for this gift. God, I pray for anyone that walked in here feeling hopeless this morning. Anyone that just needed to feel a little bit of hope, God, that that they would feel that, God, that your spirit would give that to them. For anyone that has never experienced this living hope in their life that like Peter, they can know that God, you want to use them right where they're at you want to use all of them, the good and the bad they can come to you just like that and you will redeem all of it you will make all of it go from death to life from lost to found, from darkness to light Lord, we thank you and praise you this morning that you are our living hope And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said.